1: Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com That's rocketmoney.com slash rocketmoney.com
2: Nearly everyone in Ukraine is a witness. This is actually the location where the
3: woman was killed. Which is helping a data mining operation in Europe expose apparent Russian war crimes.
2: I feel it's almost my duty that when we're faced with all this information, showing terrible things that are happening, is to pull it out there. It does involve risk, but then defending liberty, human rights, democracy involves taking risks. It's when we stop taking risks and we let the fear take hold that we see democracy die.
4: Good afternoon, brothers. Our work is to help people who don't have lawyers to access justice.
5: This soft-spoken 37-year-old lawyer founded an organization called Justice Defenders, a group that so far has trained hundreds of incarcerated men and women in prisons in Africa to become paralegals and lawyers. The results have been astounding.
6: Olga Smirnova is a Russian prima ballerina one of the world's leading dancers. But days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Smirnova pirouetted and stepped off her stage at the renowned Bolshoi Theater with dramatic flourish.
7: I was so ashamed of Russia. This is the truth. I'm not ashamed that I'm Russian, but I'm ashamed because of Russia started this action.
8: I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm
7: Bill Whitaker.
3: I'm Anderson Cooper.
7: I'm Sharon Alfonsi.
6: I'm John Wertheim.
3: I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know
9: and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly, We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.
3: The war crimes in Ukraine are among the worst of the 21st century, but they are just the latest in a history of assassinations and mass murder at the hands of Russian President Vladimir Putin. We know this, in large part, thanks to a team of online data detectives that calls itself Bellingcat. Since 2014, Bellingcat investigations have exposed Russia's undercover hit squads and tied Russian troops to atrocities. Suffice to say, the Russian government denies everything you're about to see in this story. But that's exactly where Bellingcat comes in. As we first reported in May, Bellingcat's founder, Elliot Higgins has created a method of mining online data and social media to put the lie to disinformation and unmask Vladimir Putin.
2: I feel it's almost my duty that when we're faced with all this information showing terrible things that are happening, is to pull it out there. It does involve risk, but then defending liberty, human rights, democracy involves taking risks. It's when we stop taking risks and we let the fear take hold that we see democracy die. We can see a Russian armored column. We met Elliot
3: Higgins in April in London, as Bellingcat was building a database of social media exposing apparent war crimes in Ukraine. Eyewitness accounts of attacks on neighborhoods, assaults on hospitals, and murders of civilians are being collected and published on Bellingcat's website for all to see.
2: This is actually the location where the woman was killed.
3: Nearly everyone in Ukraine is a witness with a camera. Bellingcat is combining tens of thousands of social media posts
2: to make them searchable by place and time. And we look at as many sources as possible and use those sources to build a picture of what happened. Videos, photographs, satellite imagery. Then we look at the witness statements and the various allegations made by either side. Locations and times are corroborated with independent
3: sources, including satellite images and Google Street View. The goal is to provide verified evidence for future criminal trials.
2: And it also means that we're collecting an archive of material that for future generations, they can go back and look at this material. I mean, it's often said that, you know, history is written by the victors, but it's being written now and it's being preserved now. Ukraine is the biggest project in
3: Bellingcat's short career. Higgins started Bellingcat in 2014
2: as sort of an accidental activist. I was not someone with a professional background. I was doing this merely as a hobby. What were you doing for a living at the time? I was working for a company that housed refugees in the UK. Um, I then worked for a company that manufactured pipes and then a company that manufactured lingerie. So I had a wide range of experience, but nothing that was directly related to conflict. On his off-hours, the conflict in Syria fascinated
3: him, especially how social media was exposing atrocities there. You found your calling. Indeed, I did. But his search for the truth began
2: with a fairy tale. Where does the name come from? So, Belling Cat comes from the name of a fable, Belling the Cat. And it's about a group of mice who are very scared of a very large cat. So they have a meeting and they decide to um, put a bell on the cat's neck. But then they realize that no one knows how to do it and no one is willing to volunteer to do it. So what we're teaching people to do is bell the cat. Higgins belled
3: his first predator in 2014 when Russia went to war in eastern Ukraine. Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 was high over Ukraine on its way to Asia when a missile brought it down. Two hundred and ninety-eight were killed. Everyone denied responsibility. But Higgins noticed in the hours before the shootdown, there were many social media posts from bystanders who saw a missile launcher on a flatbed
2: trailer traveling in eastern Ukraine. We started discovering social media posts of people who had seen the missile launcher being transported. And we also had social media posts of people saying there's a rocket that's just been shot up from this direction. And we could actually use their social media profiles to figure out where they lived.
3: Other posts were written by Russian soldiers homesick for family.
2: On top of this building.
3: Higgins found this clues in each image, billboards, buildings, road signs, that let him fix the location and time of each post. When he arranged all of the social media into a timeline, he could run the
2: convoy backward to its starting point. Using all those videos, you we are able to trace it all the way back to the military brigade it came from, the 53rd Air Defense Brigade. In Russia? In Russia. And we used their social media profiles, the soldiers and their family members and everyone around them to reconstruct basically their network online, which meant we could get their names, their ranks, their photographs, see who was in that convoy and who traveled to the border. So that allowed us to prove that Russia had provided the missile launcher that shot down MH17.
3: Bellingcat published its findings and Russia imposed a new law.
10: The Russian government passed a specific law banning soldiers from carrying uh, mobile devices during hostilities, which is dubbed in Russia the Bellingcat law.
3: Christo Grozev is executive director of Bellingcat, leading its 30 full-time researchers. His personal focus has been on Russian political assassinations.
10: What have you learned about how Vladimir Putin operates? What we have found out is that none of these crimes could have been perpetrated without Vladimir Putin being um, in the know and not only aware but approving of all of these crimes. So in a nutshell, what we found out was that Putin is operating an industrial-scale assassination program on his own people.
3: Bellingcat's next big project, the Russian assassination program, started in 2018 after a Russian defector and his daughter living in Britain were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent. The British had passport photos and false names of two suspects, but nothing else. Grozev knew that Russia's government and commercial records are for sale on an online black market, so with the fake names, he bought the suspects' passport records. The passport numbers on the two passports were identical except for the last digit. the last
10: digit, exactly. So they
3: were clearly made one after the other. Exactly. Suspicious, Christo Grozev started data mining. Based on official records, it seemed as though both men were born at the age of 32. And there was an unusual stamp on the passport
10: documents. There was a big black stamp in the corner of their file which said, do not provide information on this person, in case of a query, call this number. And sure enough, we called that number, and it was the Ministry of Defense. When the Ministry of Defense answered, Grozev
3: knew the would-be assassins were military intelligence agents. To match their faces to their true identities, he spent weeks combing yearbooks and photographs from Russian military academies.
10: The end result was that we were able not only to identify the real identities and the affiliation to the military intelligence, we were able to find a third and a fourth member of the same kill team that the British did not even know about. Over months, Grozev
3: uncovered a network of Russian hitmen working throughout Europe armed with nerve agent from a government lab. He bought airline manifests and found some of the assassins' travel overlapped the campaign stops of Alexei Navalny, the top political opponent of Vladimir Putin.
10: And we found a total of 66 overlaps, way beyond any statistical possibility for a, for a coincidence. They'd been shadowing him for months, They'd years. they have been shadowing him for four years. They started shadowing him the moment he announced his presidential aspirations in 2017 apparently being on standby for a possible assassination whenever they would get the signal.
3: A signal came in 2020. On a campaign trip, Navalny was poisoned with that same nerve agent. He recovered in a German hospital, returned to oppose Putin, and is now in prison. Bellingcat's investigation found assassins also
10: tailed other Putin opponents. And we found, for example, that the team that had poisoned Navalny had tailed, at the minimum, 12 other opposition figures, three of whom had been killed, in fact, poisoned.
3: Investigations like that are published on Bellingcat's website, which is blocked in Russia. Bellingcat is a nonprofit foundation which has trained more than 4,000 journalists and war crime investigators in its techniques of geolocation, verification, and data mining.
11: We're headed into an entirely new era of human rights investigations and war crimes investigations more generally.
3: Bellingcat trained Alexa Koenig's team at the University of California Berkeley Human Rights Center. Koenig is the executive director of the center, which has used Bellingcat's techniques to expose atrocities in Myanmar And chemical attacks in Syria.
11: They're showing the world that you don't have to be a large outfit like the New York Times or the International Criminal Court to pull these disparate bits of information together and actually get underneath who's done what to whom and when.
3: Still, Koenig says this new era is challenged by the fact that anyone with an Internet connection can be an investigator. The problem becomes, how do you make sure they're right? Right.
11: That's always the risk. And I think one big concern in this space is the ethics of doing this work and making sure that you don't get it wrong.
3: Alexa Koenig's UC Berkeley Center recently worked with the United Nations to publish guidelines for witnesses who post evidence and for amateur investigators. Standards. Yes. Rules of evidence.
11: Exactly. So a lot of people are being really innovative and creative about how to use a lot of digital tools and techniques to ultimately solve these puzzles. But the problem is a lot of them are not trained as legal investigators. They're not thinking about things like chain of custody and how do you establish that something you grab from the internet hasn't been changed in transit and should actually be trusted as reliable once it reaches a court of law. So our work is hopefully designed around helping them do that in a way that maximizes that value for accountability.
3: Ultimately, what is your hope for your Ukraine investigations?
10: We already have been approached by the International Criminal Court. We've been approached by several um, prosecution authorities in, in Europe who want to initiate their own cases into war crimes. And we not only hope, but we know that our database, our research now, will be used in a future let's call it, uh, something like a Nuremberg trial.
3: There may be no accountability for Russia in a courtroom, but the work of traditional journalists and Bellingcat's expanding database are overwhelming Putin's propaganda. You have exposed a number of Russian intelligence operations, some of which
2: involve assassins, and I wonder if you fear for your own safety. You have to be careful about your own security. It's an extra level of paranoia. It doesn't kind of rule my life, but you just have to be kind of hypersensitive sometimes to certain things. Why take the risk? Why you? If Russia is to sustain itself, it has to rule by fear. You can't just let that fear overtake you. If you're in a position to do something, if you have information, if you have the motivation and you have the strength to do it, you should do it.
3: Ukraine will be the most thoroughly documented war in history. Russia says no civilians have been harmed by its forces and scenes of atrocities are staged. But Putin's defense is a throwback to a previous century, analog denials in the age of the digital witness.
12: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
8: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
12: I could stay here forever.
8: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort, meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs, a gripping murder mystery
5: Over the years, we've done a number of stories about wrongly convicted prisoners who get exonerated when a crusading attorney takes on their case. In prisons around the world, however, that rarely happens. In Kenya, for example, more than 80% of inmates have never been represented by a lawyer. Justice defenders would like to change that. It's an organization started in Africa by a soft-spoken 37-year-old lawyer named Alexander McLean. Justice Defenders has worked in 55 prisons in Kenya, Uganda, and the Gambia, giving legal training to hundreds of inmates who can then help their fellow prisoners, the innocent and the guilty, get a fair hearing in court. They are also helping some prisoners get law degrees. And as we found out when we visited Kenya before the pandemic, the results have been astounding. Thika Main Prison outside Nairobi is a miserable place. Built almost 70 years ago to hold 300 prisoners, when we visited three years ago, there were more than a thousand. In this one dank holding cell, 140 men were packed tightly together, the air thick with the smell of sweat and urine. They'd been accused of everything from trespassing and robbery to assault and murder. Some have already been convicted, but most have yet to stand trial. They can't afford bail, so they'll likely have to wait here for years.
4: GOOD AFTERNOON, BROTHERS. Good afternoon. OUR WORK IS TO HELP PEOPLE WHO DON'T HAVE LAWYERS TO ACCESS JUSTICE.
5: THAT'S ALEXANDER MCLEAN, THE FOUNDER OF JUSTICE DEFENDERS, WHICH HAS BEEN WORKING IN KENYA'S PRISONS FOR 13 YEARS.
4: HOW MANY OF YOU HAVE A LAWYER? TWO.
5: Two. THREE. JUST we THREE MEN so IN THIS GROUP OF MORE THAN 200 PRISONERS HAVE AN ATTORNEY.
4: WE THINK IT'S A PROBLEM THAT OFTEN POOR PEOPLE GO TO COURT WITHOUT DEFENSE.
5: Defending the defenceless is at the heart of Alexander McLean's mission. Most of the people who are in prisons in Kenya don't come to court knowing their rights, knowing how a court works.
4: You might meet people in prison who think that the police are the ones who've convicted them of an offense, or they've never had a copy of their judgment. So they know that they've been convicted, but they don't know exactly what of and why. And so our hope with our work is that we give people fair hearings. So even if they're convicted or they're given a prison sentence, afterwards they say, well, that's fair uh, because um, my voice has been heard.
5: Morris Cabiria was sent to Thika prison in 2005. He was a police officer and was accused of stealing a cell phone and credit card. How much time did you end up in pretrial detention, waiting for your trial?
12: Eight good years. Eight years? Eight years, from 2005 to 2013.
5: In court, he claimed he'd been framed because he didn't pay a bribe to a superior officer. The judge found him guilty of armed robbery and gave him the mandatory sentence, death. The death penalty for an armed robbery? Yes. When the verdict came, do you remember that day?
12: Very much. When the judge sentenced me to death, um, to suffer death by hanging. I I, I just saw blackness everywhere. McLean took
5: us to Langata Women's Prison in Nairobi, where Justice Defenders has trained 47 inmates to be what they call paralegals. They're given a three-week law course, which enables them to teach other prisoners about bail, court procedures, and rules of evidence. The paralegals also prepare petitions and write appeals challenging inmates' convictions and sentences. What year did you arrive here? Jane Manyonge became a paralegal five years ago. She was a schoolteacher when she was charged with killing her husband, who she says was abusive. Convicted of murder, she, too, was given a mandatory death sentence. You didn't know your rights? Never,
2: never, never. How courts worked? Yeah, never. And that's what propelled me to join the paralegal. That legal basic knowledge that I get, it goes a long way. You don't need a degree to draft somebody, an appeal,
12: or something like that. How does that feel? You feel that you are still a
2: human being, even if you are here. You can do something to change somebody's life.
5: Alexander McLean began volunteering to help others as a teenager, growing up in South London. His father was Jamaican, and his mother is English. He first went to Africa when he was 18 to do hospice work in prisons and hospitals in Uganda.
4: We went onto this ward, and by the toilet on the floor, I saw a man lying on a plastic sheet in a pool of urine. And for five days, I washed him and tried to advocate for him. Came on the sixth day, and he was lying dead and naked on the floor.
5: It's not something a lot of people, I think, would volunteer to do.
4: I guess that sometimes in life, we see things that we can't unsee, and then we have a choice as to how we respond to them. Because every person has gifts and talents and something to contribute to our society. Our society can only flourish when um, the inherent worth of each person is valued.
5: After returning to London and graduating from law school, he could have gotten a high-paying job. Instead, in 2007, he started a charity to improve conditions in African prisons. At Nairobi's Committee Maximum Security Prison, a notorious and sometimes violent place, he met George Karaba was on death row for killing a man in a dispute over land.
12: I remember the first thing that we asked was how he can be able to provide us with reading materials. So
5: McLean began collecting whatever books he could find for the prisoners.
4: My sense was that books could transform us and transform our circumstances and take us um, to a different place. Nine, ten, eleven... Prison
5: authorities had already started an academy of their own, with classes from first grade through high school, teaching math, English, science, and religion. And with McLean's help, they turned a room at the end of a cell block into a library.
12: You can't imagine the happiness. You can't imagine. Just from a book? Yeah. Because when I start reading this book and it's actually enlightening me, it's like now I'm being opened up to the outside world. It started giving us hope. McLean wanted to do more than
5: just improve life in Kenya's prisons. He wanted to make sure those accused of crimes had a fair hearing.
4: Often it's people from backgrounds of privilege who become lawyers or become politicians and make the law, but it's the poorest people in our societies who disproportionately feel the impact of the law. And I wondered what it looked like to tap into that lived uh, experience. So in
5: 2012, McLean arranged with the University of London Law School for inmates to begin taking a three-year correspondence course, the same one Nelson Mandela took when he was in prison. To qualify, they have to pass an entrance exam and have a track record of helping other prisoners while they've been behind bars. So even if they may have murdered somebody and have a a life sentence, um, if, if they have transformed themselves in prison, if they are serving others they might be able to qualify.
4: Yes, because we believe that there's more to someone uh, that's killed than being a murderer, or more to someone that's, uh, who's stolen than being a thief. I don't think any of us has to be defined by the worst thing that we've done.
5: Remember Morris Kiberia, the cop in for armed robbery? He enrolled in law school and found the learning curve steep.
12: I, I never touched a computer in my life before I went to prison. Really? Yes. I touched the first computer in that law class.
5: In some ways, they are like law students anywhere. In the chapel at Committee Maximum Security Prison, we watched as they held a moot court, a mock legal hearing where they role play, arguing cases with all the gravitas and grandeur of a real Kenyan courtroom. Some prisoners play prosecutors.
13: The society as a whole needs protection Others, the defense. It is better to acquit nine guilty suspects than convict one innocent person. There's also
5: a defendant. We proceed. And prisoner judges to render a verdict. The appellants have proved the appeal. You may have noticed prison guards in attendance. Remarkably, some of them are taking law classes as well. Willie Ojolu is the chief inspector at Langata Women's Prison and just completed his University of London law degree. I don't know that I know of many guards in the United States who train to become a lawyer so they can give legal advice to the people they're guarding. It's pretty
12: unique. Wow, it sounds unique, but that's what happens here. (laughs) You know, people are brought to prison as a punishment, but not for punishment.
5: I've never heard it phrased that way. So your goal is not to punish them, but
12: to help them improve on their life and manage their life properly so that they don't get in conflict with the law.
5: Three years ago, inside Committee Maximum Security Prison, there was a graduation ceremony the likes of which no one here had ever seen. Eighteen inmates, former prisoners and guards, received their University of London law school degrees. George Caraba got his. While he may spend the rest of his life in prison, he says he's been transformed.
12: If I do not get out of prison, I will still continue doing what I do.
5: To see somebody you've helped get out of prison...
12: It gives me great satisfaction.
5: Does it feel like part of you goes out with that yeah, person?
12: I feel part of me is actually out, and
5: therefore I'm good. George Caraba and others helped Morris Kabiria appeal his death penalty conviction. Kabiria argued the case himself... And was stunned when the judge acquitted him of all charges after 13 years in prison
12: i felt like i, I did not hear right so i asked her what <laughs> and she told me hey come on i thought you're a lawyer
5: you didn't believe what she was saying believe, you wanted to see it in writing i don't
12: believe it can happen that way because i it, it was not even in my mind first impression is very important
5: morris kabiria was freed but when he got out he went right back to prison as a full-time employee of Justice Defenders. Here he is teaching inmates a lesson he learned in court firsthand. Always look the judge straight in the eye.
12: Don't just lie low. Don't keep quiet. It might affect your defense or your case.
5: Justice Defenders says since we visited Kenya, they've provided more than 37,000 legal services to prisoners and seen almost 11,000 people released. This was Pauline Najeri's walk to freedom after five years in prison for fraud.
14: Yes, oh, Thank you, thank you, darling, for coming.
5: Her daughter was there to greet her. Some of the people that your paralegals are training um, have committed very serious offenses. For sure. Do they really deserve a chance to get out if, if they've really committed those crimes?
4: We're not determining sentence. Those who are guilty of offenses should be punished and the punishment should be um, proportionate and it should be viewed towards equipping them um, one day to leave prison and to contribute to society. But those who are innocent shouldn't be um, uh, wrongly punished.
5: Justice Defenders relies entirely on donations and spends about $2 million a year helping inmates. They have begun trying to expand their work into other prisons in Africa, Europe and the United States.
4: We have a shared hunger for justice.
5: Already, their impact in Kenya has been profound. Morris Kabiria was part of a team of justice defenders who successfully challenged the constitutionality of Kenya's mandatory death sentence. The law was changed, and as a result, thousands of death row inmates became eligible for resentencing. That must feel extraordinary.
12: Extraordinary. I love law. I love law. I eat law, I drink law, I love law. (laughs) You eat and drink it? Completely. (laughs) I do everything in law.
5: Listening to you talk about the law, it sort of makes me excited about the law.
12: Yes. Let me tell you, Cooper. You know, there is one thing we do. We make assumptions as people, Mm. as a society, and we dig our graves through those assumptions. Mm. Law is not for lawyers. Law is not for the government. Law is not for some people somewhere, or the rich. Law is for everyone.
5: In the coming weeks, 100,000 inmates will have been advised by justice defenders. With their planned expansion into new prisons and countries, they aim to serve one million prisoners by 2030.
12: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
6: For decades now, Russians have known the drill. When there's bad news brewing, such as the death of a leader, or a convulsive event, such as the Chernobyl disaster, state TV switches its programming and begins airing Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake. Nothing to see here, folks. But also note the choice of distraction. Ballet is centrally important to Russian society and to Russian image. Dancers slicing through the air and challenging laws of physics and gravity represent civility and grace. But after February 24th, when Russian military troops invaded Ukraine, Russian ballet troops had their Western tours canceled, and Moscow's Bolshoi Theater has shuttered shows by directors critical of Putin's war. As we first reported earlier this year, this brutal war plays out on the most delicate of fronts, leaving ballet in exile. When ballet dancers are described as God's athletes, well, you could offer up Olga Smirnova as supporting evidence. She treads on air, coming in on little cat feet. She's a Russian prima ballerina, one of the world's leading dancers. But days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Smirnova pirouetted and stepped off her stage at the renowned Bolshoi Theater with dramatic flourish. She took to social media to express her outrage and then fled the country, the modern-day version of Nuriev or Barishnikov defecting. When you sat down to write that social media post, what did you want to communicate? What did you want to say?
7: I just couldn't keep it inside. I was so ashamed of Russia. It, this is the truth. I'm not ashamed that I'm Russian, but I'm ashamed because of Russia started this action. I
6: Read what you wrote. You said you were against this war with every fiber of your being, but I now feel that a line has been drawn that separates the before and the after.
7: It's how I felt. 24th of February, this was the line, because it's all changed, all changed. The reputation of Russia and Russians people. Even if you are not a soldier, you're just Russian, it's, so, it's still make a shadow on you. Being Russian. Being Russian, and it's, it's really painful.
6: Predictably, Smirnova's post went viral. She was, after all, a leading light at Moscow's Bolshoi Ballet. From the Russian word for big, Bolshoi is the world's largest ballet company and the most prestigious. The theater is physically close to the Kremlin, a short walk away, and also aligned inextricably with the Russian government. Tsars love the Bolshoi. For decades, communist leaders used the Bolshoi theater for political
13: stagecraft, holding rallies and giving national addresses there. This is something that celebrates Russia. Every Important guests who would visit the Soviet Union would be invited to the Bolshoi to see the performance. And uh, there was a a pride of of Russia at any time.
6: Alexei Radmansky trained at the Bolshoi school and was, for a time, its artistic director. He was born in Russia, but grew up in Kiev, where his parents still live. At the time of the invasion, he was in Russia choreographing two ballets. He left the country immediately, unwilling to continue working in a world so tied to the
13: Putin regime. As I was going in a taxi to the airport, uh, I felt these two sand castles falling apart. Behind my back. Those those sand castles were the work... The work you had done. Yes, yes, yes. It was an agony. It was a very hard day. And,
6: of course, a catastrophic day for Ukraine. Indiscriminate bombings and missile strikes raining down upon the country, crushing lives and dreams. Not least those of an ascendant ballerina from Kiev, Paulina Chepik, age 17. You wanted to be a ballerina for years and years. What was it like when suddenly you couldn't, couldn't go to school, couldn't dance?
14: I was shocked, and I'm like, "Oh my God!" And first, about what I'm thinking that I left my point shoes in college. It was my that was your
6: fir- first thought. Yes, you left your point shoes yes. at school.
14: I left everything actually.
6: War didn't stop her in her footsteps. She resumed dancing at home, using whatever she could as a bar. But after a few days, her parents, both former dancers, focused on getting Paulina out. They called on a famously well-connected figure in the tight-knit ballet community, New Jersey-based Larissa Savliev. You're getting this barrage of emails from, from parents and from dancers. What are they What are they telling you? What are they asking you?
7: Uh, please help. That was, get us out of here. They're willing to give up everything else, but they have to dance. And the parents were, you know, it doesn't matter what we do. They have to dance.
6: This was their their lifeline. This is
7: it. They just, they, they could not imagine not dance.
6: In the 1990s, she founded Youth America Grand Prix, a ballet competition and scholarship program, pairing aspiring dancers with ballet schools worldwide.
7: Well, no, they want to see her for full year but you have to come for the summer first.
6: Now, in a humanitarian crisis, she and the international ballet community scramble to action. Savlyev tapped her vast network, relocating more than 100 young Ukrainian dancers to new schools and host families.
7: We give each child a number just to move faster. And we say, okay, Number 55 is, like, uh, just get a spot in Stuttgart. Okay, number 54, just get a spot in uh, Dresden. Cross it off the list. Cross it off the list. When a slot opened for Paulina, she stuffed
6: leotards and tutus into a suitcase, along with a bottle of her mom's perfume, a reminder of home. And then she headed to Kiev's train station
14: and my parents are in a window of train, they said goodbye, we love you, everything will be fine. And I was crying and we were all crying. I was thinking maybe I would need to take my suitcase and go back to my family because <laughs> my heart was broken really.
6: How did you overcome that? What, what, what made you not get off that train?
14: Because it's open door for me. It's like door for my dream.
6: 17-year-old that she is, Paulina documented the lonely odyssey on TikTok. Trains and buses, five days and 1,200 miles, Kiev to Lviv, Poland to Berlin, finally to Amsterdam, where she landed at the Dutch National Ballet Academy, one of the leading schools in the world. When you got to the new school and started dancing again, how did that feel?
14: Oh, I was very happy, Yes. I, uh, my mind uh, changed because I was thinking about my parents uh, all the time for my family, for my sister. And when I go to the ballet class, the, this uh, world changed for me. I have another world, a world of ballet.
6: Her adjustment was made easier when she found other Ukrainian dance students who, thanks to Larissa Savliev, also found safe harbor in Amsterdam. Paulina fell into a routine immediately. On the cusp of a professional career, she prepared for final exams. She was jittery beforehand. She emerged relieved, triumphant, and eager to report back to mom. What did you tell her?
14: That I was nervous, but when I start, I do everything right. ¶¶
6: If the war has made refugees out of some Ukrainian dancers, it's made soldiers out of others. When the war began, Alexey Podiumpkin, a principal dancer with Ukraine's national ballet, turned in his tights for military fatigues. Here he is in downtown Lviv, having just returned from duty as a medic. What was
10: your life like before the war? Before war, I must, uh, I preparing a new premiere in ballet, Ukrainian ballet. No, like real normal life. And just one moment it's like changes. But uh, I need to do something. I can't sit just at home in shelter and uh, watch TV, how my friends uh, die, and uh, uh, everyone do something.
6: What have you seen these last few months? Every day it's really
10: scary. They crashed everything, destroyed uh, houses of civilians, people. It's brothers, uh, son, uh,
6: fathers, sisters. While he says he's shaken by what he's seen unfold on the battlefield, he's also appalled by a war taking place on another front,
10: at the Bolshoi. The like Bolshoi now it's a toxic feature. Nobody wants to work with you. You said toxic? Toxic, yes. In Russia, art, it's politics. It's uh, Russian government uses use it... Uh, uh, barely it's like weapon.
6: The weapon was deployed at the Bolshoi as recently as this past April, when the theater revived a production of Spartacus in support of the Russian military invasion, unnerving many in the dance world, including longtime head of the Dutch National Ballet, Ted Branson.
5: Well, it was a very um, uh, clear statement that we have to support our boys who are on a military operation to save Ukraine from the fascists, which is a totally ridiculous concept, of course.
6: This allegory, Spartacus, about the, the slave revolt is, is somehow being co-opted by yeah. the, the aggressive yeah, superpower.
5: Absolutely. no, it's not, it's, not, it's not for nothing that this became one of the signature ballets of the, Soviet, of the Soviet time.
6: Abroad, the ballet community has staged benefit concerts to raise funds for Ukraine. While Russia's famed companies, the Bolshoi and St. Petersburg's Marinsky, have had their touring dates canceled. I think you need to be a little bit more exit with your arms. With the Iron Curtain down, artists have to pick a side. Alexei Redmonsky left Moscow for American Ballet Theater in New York, where he is artist-in-residence and where we spoke with him remotely this past April. It sounds like you you don't buy this idea that, look, individuals shouldn't bear the responsibility for for the acts of the state, that artists should just be artists.
13: No, I don't think the artists are separate from politics. And besides, it's not, for me, it's not politics. It's about humanity. It's about responding to war crimes, responding to the crimes of your government, of your president. It just made things clear, which things are important and which aren't. And you make a choice. You decide where you want to belong.
6: For Olga Smirnova, that choice came together in a matter of days after she condemned the war. She left Russia and landed on her feet at the Dutch National Opera in Amsterdam, just around the corner from Paulina's school. It must have been incredibly difficult to leave the Bolshoi.
7: If you make a choice, you have a consequences, but this is how it works. I had to leave everything, like my home, my theater, my repertoire, my partners, my parents, sister, brother, everything. But I don't have regrets.
6: No regrets?
7: No, because at least I can be honest with myself.
6: I'm John Wertheim. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.